You might dream of writing a big, consequential cookbook, but where do you even start and how long does it take to get there? Welcome to Everything Cookbooks, the podcast for writers, readers, and cooks. This is Kristen Donnelly, and I'm here with Kate Leahy. Hey, Kate. Hey, Kristen. Our guest today is someone who started with a dream job or a job that we both used to dream about having. How about that? She was the local paper's food columnist. I wanted a job like that so bad. When I was in high school, there was it was the Contra Costa Times and there was a local food columnist and she'd get to write about blueberries one week and then about, I don't know, maple syrup the next week. And it was like, wow, a job where you just get to like talk about food all the time. It was the kind of column that's like right next to this other columnist who wrote about like odd animal behavior in the backyard. That part of the section of the newspaper was um, that was my jam. Always fun to read. Yeah. I don't know if I looked at the food section of the paper where I grew up as a young adult. I read the Washington Post, which obviously big deal food section. But yes, like I was like, oh, it'd be so fun to dig into a city. Yeah. Mix it up between cooking and reporting and um, home cooking and restaurants. But anyway, so our guest actually has that experience, which is so cool. Right. I mean, such good training for for writing cookbooks for everything, really. Yeah. Yeah. Writing tightly and interviewing and deadlines, like deadlines. producing work quickly. Oh, gosh. Yeah. You're reminding me, actually, I had a friend who wrote for the New York Daily News, and I think she had to hand in something almost daily. Wow. <laughs> the pressure. So in any case, our guest today is Sandra Gutierrez. She has built a career writing about regional foods, and she started as a columnist, as we mentioned, of a regional newspaper in North Carolina. From that, she became this expert in Southern and Latin American foodways and has written cookbooks and many, many articles. She was born in Philadelphia, raised in Guatemala, where her family is from, and then she returned to the U.S. for college. She lived in Toronto before settling in North Carolina, and that's when she started writing about food in the 1990s. She's the author of five books, most recently Latinissimo, published by Knopf. It's this whopping 600-page book. and 600 pages? Yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> and it covers recipes from 21 different countries. So it's a big one. I can't wait to talk about it with her. All right, let's go talk to Sandra. Welcome to Everything Cookbooks. We are thrilled to have you here, Sandra. I am so happy to be here. I have not missed a single episode. Oh, wow. That's oh, wow. awesome. That's Thank nice. you. <laughs> Thank you so much. So you got your start as a food writer working as a food columnist for a newspaper in Cary, North Carolina, right? That's right. A long time ago. Yeah. And it's funny, Kate and I were both talking about how like at some point in the past, that was kind of our dream job was to be the newspaper columnist and like really get to dig into a region. And so we were wondering, how did it come about? It's a funny story. Actually, my husband was going crazy with me in the house. We had moved here from Toronto, Canada, where there was so much going on all the time. And I moved to Cary when Cary was very, very small. Cary is a city, a little town next to Raleigh. There are probably 40,000 people coming from a city of millions of people. In the first couple of months, I was really struggling, you know, and bored and redecorating the room and redecorating it again. 
And my husband came home one day and said, you know what? The Cary newspaper is looking for a food editor. You've been a caterer. You love to write. I think you could do this. You're driving me nuts. Please, please, please write an article. You have half an hour and I'll drop it off after lunch. This was before email. This was before floppy disks. This was before all that. And so I said, okay, fine. I love challenges. You know, I just love a challenge. And I was really needy to do something. And so I wrote an article and my husband dropped it off at lunchtime. And by dinner time, they had hired me. Oh my wow. gosh. Do you remember what the article was about? The first article I wrote was on olive oil. I called it the gold of the Mediterranean. It was funny because I started as a generalist and it yeah. took me a long time before I started writing about Latin American food. I, I first learned how to write about Southern food and became an expert on Southern food ways. It's a very interesting career path that I led, that I had a foot here and a foot there and they both melded together and that's where my career was born. I think you you had an interview with the Southern Foodways Alliance where you talked a little bit about getting hired at the newspaper and there was some pushback from, from readers. They thought, well, why would the newspaper hire a Mexican to write about Southern food? And A, that's not fair. And B, you're not Mexican. Tell us a little bit about what happened with that. Could have been a setback. You could have lost sort of like your steam. But again, I like challenges. Yeah. So <laughs> that was a challenge for me. Yeah, I got to the office to drop. I had to drop in my articles in person every Monday morning. Imagine, drive to the paper, drop it off, talk to the Amazing. editors. You know, yeah. he said to me, I just got a phone call and we've been getting some correspondence, but there's this particular dis disgruntled reader who called us. She was very offended that we had given the cooking column to a Mexican. And how would you like us to handle it? And I said, well, I really don't know. Um, maybe you should handle it, but yes. I'm happy to call them. <laughs> but I think at this point, it's only been a week since I've started. So maybe you should handle it. So she called her and she told her, you know, give her a chance because we interviewed uh, 60 some people for this position. And she has the experience and we wanted to hire somebody who's going to grow and help the community grow with all the influx of people that are coming from elsewhere. And we need somebody to open up the world of cooking to not just what we eat here in the South. The way the story ends is after I left seven years later, I got a phone call at home and it was that disgruntled reader. No way. Wow. It's a full circle. Amazing. And she said, listen, I was that person who called to the newspaper. I know they told you. And I said, yes. And she said, but I just wanted to say how much I'm going to miss your column and how much I never missed your column. And I, I really grew to love it. And for me, that was such a litmus test because I just thought, you know, if I can convince my hardest critic, then I may have benefited or have had had an impact on, on other readers as well. So it, it has a really sweet ending, what could have been very bitter. Yeah. And again, I went, when, when she told me that, I said, you know, it's, they're going to need some convincing but I can do that. And food is a perfect way to bring people together and, and to build bridges and to break boundaries. So let's do it through the columns. And it worked. I'm wondering, because in that same interview, you talked about how you were almost a little reluctant to start writing about Latin American food. And it was your editor who gently gave you that push. Did that initial criticism hold you back in any way? or That was exactly what held me back. Mm -hmm. uh, I just thought they're not ready. And maybe I'm not ready to share Latin American because they're boxing me into one box. Mm -hmm. It was very controlling. And so I thought, how do I gain their trust? My readership was big. I had a readership of various types of readers. I had doctors. I had a, a lot of men followed my column, which is really interesting. I got a lot of correspondence and emails from them. But I had housewives and I had teachers at schools. And so it was very varied. And because I taught cooking to that general audience already, I thought this is how I should approach 
uh, my writing. And so I started generalist, you know, writing about ingredient based foods, like writing about mayonnaise or things like that. And then I started writing about celebrity cookbooks. Mm -hmm. My first celebrity I interviewed was Emma Lagasse. So I saw that. Yeah. (laughs) Blew you up, right? (laughs) He made my career. He doesn't know it. I've written to him. I've told him, but I don't think he realizes that he did. That's amazing. Um, And then I started writing about Southern foodways. And in order to do that, I had to study Southern foodways. I really immersed myself in every kind of way. Uh, I've been a researcher all my life. The American School in Guatemala teaches students to research deeply. That was something that was ingrained into us. And so I went to libraries, but I also started talking to writers, to cooks, to my readers who were cooks. Some of them would invite me to their houses to learn how to make certain recipes. You know, I would say, please invite me to your church suppers where I can taste the food. And it wasn't until I felt really that I could write as an expert in Southern foodways that I started writing about it. And by then, I already had an audience that was loyal, you know, that that, that believed in my work. And then my editor came to me and she said, listen, we hired you because you were going to bring all of these Latin American cuisines here. And you've you've written about Europe, you've written about Asian cuisines, you've written about all these things, but what about Latin America? And I thought, oh, because of this. And she said, we're ready. They're ready. And that's why I started. But it took me three years to start writing about Latin America. Wow. And I started with Cuba. I did not start with Mexico. I started with Cuba. Mm-hmm. Or Guatemala, you didn't start with either, no. which, yeah. Right. Why did you start with Cuba for the for the newspaper? It was back in the 90s. And I felt that Cuban cuisine was the Latin American cuisine that most Americans would recognize other than Mexico because of their connection to Florida. And we were having a lot of Southerners moving also upwards from Florida then. And I thought, well, this is a good doorway. Again, trying to bring food and trying to teach about new cuisines from a point of familiarity mm-hmm. to make it accessible to most people. I did write a lot about Mexican food, of course, but I didn't want that to be the first that they heard or the first that they read because I wanted to break the stereotype that we were all Mexicans and that we all ate the same food. Mm-hmm. When you tell people that you grew up in Guatemala, what do people assume that food is? I used to tell this in my cooking classes. I would say I'm from Guatemala. and Yes. Some Latin Americans eat tacos, but you will only find fajitas in Mexican restaurants because if you were to ask for fajitas in Argentina or in Nicaragua, you probably would be slapped because what you're asking for is a lady's girdle. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that demonstrates exactly what I mean, you know, and even a taco, the word taco could mean the heel of a shoe or a very pudgy short man, depending on what country you're in. So we all speak Spanish. We don't all speak the same Spanish. And in the same way, we don't all have the same history or the same cultural amalgamations in our cuisines. Our food is different. Yeah, that's sort of a daunting thing to take on. Your current book, Latinissimo, delves into 21 countries and the food of 21 countries. But before we get into it, maybe we'll back up and and figure out like how you got ready to the point to take on such a challenge. So tell us about your first foray into cookbooks. Well, the first thing that happened to me is that I was signed by Lisa Eckes and Sally Eckes. I know you've had Sally on the show, so Mm -hmm. they signed me. And I was really just a new writer. I had never published a book. They only did cookbooks back then. She said, just write a proposal of the dream book you'd like to write. And so I wrote a proposal about a very interesting way of getting to learn about Latin American cuisines, again, because I've been teaching them and also because I knew their resistance, especially in publishing. I I could see that back then there weren't any books that were not Mexican on the shelves. 
even then only a, a half of a shell uh, of a shelf as opposed to you know the shelves and shelves of Italian and everything. Right. Well, and another thing about that, not only would they maybe be a Mexican cookbook, but it couldn't be a Mexican cookbook. It had to be like a Mexican slow cooker cookbook or a yeah. Mexican, you know, some sort of like quick and easy or something. It wasn't giving the cuisine the breadth that other cuisines received, I think. And I'll go a little further and yeah. say they were not written by Latin American authors. Oh. Mm. The first Mexican books were written by uh, and they were great Mexican books. I'm not saying they weren't. My, one of my friends, Diana Kennedy, but she was British, you know, and she mm-hmm. became the ambassador of Mexican cuisine. Uh, Rick Bayless, you know, all these people were writing, but they were not Latin Americans. So I felt there was a, a niche there that needed to be filled. But how were we going to make this approachable to people? And so my idea was, let's discuss the different culinary movements that have made Latin America what it is, the Judeo-Latin movement, the Chino-Latino movement, you know, and, and start talking about those culinary movements. And at the end of the book, I added a chapter that said that I was started to notice that in the South, there was a new branch of cooking coming up that I was going to call the new Southern Latino movement, where I was encountering Southerners and Latinos melding in the same territory and with the same ingredients and the same cooking techniques and creating dishes that were familiar to both sides. When the University of North Carolina Press saw that chapter, they said, we want a book entirely on this. Mm. Because Uh if you can prove that this is a real movement, we want a whole book. And I did. Natalie Dupre, a very dear friend and mentor of mine, told me when the book came out, she said, you're way ahead of your time. (laughs) way ahead of your time. She said, "Uh, I think you're going to find a lot of skepticism at the beginning and then people are going to realize that you're onto something and that's exactly what happened. Oh, yeah. And was the skepticism while you were writing the book or even as it came out? It was as I was writing the book because once it came out and people started reading and cooking what I was talking about, they realized that they had been eating it for a long time. You know, they had already experienced barbecue with uh, chipotle peppers in the mm-hmm. sauce or hush puppies with jalapenos. And they're like, oh, yeah, this is real. We thought it was sour, but we can see the connection now. And then the book just took off mm-hmm. um, all over the world. And it's just been received in such an incredible way. And the movement, which I coined, and I, I didn't make it. I just discovered it by happenstance is the one that made it possible for me to be part of the food exhibit at the Smithsonian Museum. Oh, yeah. wow. wow. So cool. Your tortilla press? I have a tortilla press, a comal. I have several things because there have been two exhibits, the, the temporary exhibit at the Anacostia Museum and the permanent exhibit at the Museum of National American History of the Smithsonian Institution. So that's the one where I have a comal and I have a few... It's it's that a little exhibit, and then I'm in two other windows for two other things that I did. Oh no, big but, deal! Cool. <laughs> I always say it's very very precious real estate. We're next to Julia Child's kitchen, so oh, she's yeah, got the big kitchen. We have little windows, but it means the world to me. Absolutely, you know, that recognized. Yeah. What was it like working with the university press? I'll tell you what, university presses are a magnificent place to work when you like to research. Mm -hmm. Uh, They teach you to write more academically, even though with me, they said we want these to be cookbooks, Mm -hmm. which was wonderful because that's how I connect to my readers. All my books have history, all my books have trivia, all my books have the cooking techniques and lessons that I teach when I teach cooking. But there is this more exact research that you have to do to make sure that everything is on point and everything is um, vetted 
And that's very important for authenticity. So what working for a university press does, in my opinion, is that it makes you an expert also in the eyes of your readers and also in the eyes of publishers, because you have to be vetted by different people in order to be able to publish with them. And I had a great time with the University uh, of North Carolina Press. Everybody there was amazing. They supported my books. And then when it came time to write my second book, they actually asked me, what would you like to write about? And I said, Latin American cuisine, but not just any book. I want a book that's fun, that's very casual, and that will um, actually interest the young crowd, you know, the young people. I want to be able to access those kids who know about food, who have educated palates, even though they haven't traveled necessarily because of what they're eating. And so I decided to come up with a theme of Latin American street foods. And what that did was it caught on to the movement that I was starting to see in places like California and Portland that I had just visited, where they had a lot of food truck Mm -hmm. culture. Mm -hmm. And I was able to predict that that food truck culture was going to increase Mm -hmm. and was going to keep on going, that it was just like the beginning of it. And so it took a couple of years to write the book. By the time the book came out, people were already experiencing street food from different countries. A lot of people were traveling. And so that book, it just came out on paperback, actually, because it's been selling so well. Oh, cool. It's still selling. And it's a fun book. I wanted people to come to Latin American cuisine from the point of view that food is not expensive to make and that it was fun and happy food. Mm-hmm. And that's still the way I look at Latin American food. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and this whole time, were you working with um, Lisa and Sally Eckes on kind of crafting these proposals, or you already had the the relationship with the press and you could just pitch them directly? I already had the relationship, so I could work on my proposals. However, I will say that one of the beauties of their agency is that they always work on that necessary things to work on that proposal. So Mm -hmm. they always vet it before it goes out and they know, and it's important that they do so because different publishers will publish different kinds of books Mm -hmm. and that's how they figure out which publishers to try to sell your book to. Yeah, um, it's, a, it's a great business model, as you well know, and I've learned so much from listening to your <laughs> podcast. It's not such an easy pathway to make cookbooks. It's completely different than what people u- usually think of. You know, people say, I have a collection of recipes. I want to write a cookbook. Here it is. You know, it's not, it doesn't work that way. There are a lot of intricacies and a lot of vetting that goes into getting uh, published by a serious publisher, you know, um, so I love being part of their agency and I I consider myself to be very, very fortunate to be with them. And then you switched publishers for your next book, which was Empanadas with Stuart Tabori and Chang, right? Yes, I switched publishers. That was because they wanted that book written. Oh, cool. Did they come to you? They had that idea running out. And so Lisa Mm -hmm. brought it to me and she said, they want this book. Can you do it? And I said, yes, I can do it. And so I put it together. and, And then I came back and wrote Beans and Fieldies for the University of North Carolina Press again. It was really special for me to write that book, to be asked to write that book, because it was a, it is a collection of books, actually has just been released on paperback, the whole collection. Oh, cool. I think there's 30 or 31 books. I'm not sure. The editor, Elaine Maisner, who was the ex- executive editor back then, chose each one of the authors based on Southern ingredients. Just to see the collection of people who are writing, my colleagues who wrote the other books. To me, that was a full acceptance that I was really a Southerner now. I really am a new Southern Latina because here I am, you know, the only Latino name in the collection of Southern food waste. So it all tied together and it brought together, it gave me a sense of belonging in both places. Very cool. How foundational was your experience at the newspaper for what you've gone on to do since then? Uh, My husband tells me 
that they paid me to go to writing university. Oh, ah, cool. When I started, uh, oh my goodness, the first phone call when she hired me, my editor called me and she said, so uh, soon you'll be able to turn in floppy disk, but we don't have that equipment yet. But so what we need from you are Word documents. And I said, of course, no problem. I can do it. I can do it. I hung up the phone and I told my husband, what a strange editor. She wants a document full of words. Of course, what else am I going to do? Here? And he said, oh my gosh, I have only two days to teach you how to use a computer. <laughs> work, work on a work do- on a Word document. You know, that's how green I was when I came into it. But the writing skills I had, I was an English major. I went to Smith College. I knew how to write and I had always wanted to be a writer. And I had the cooking experience as well, but it, it was hard. And then, like I said, my first celebrity interview was Emerald. And I knew that I had to record the conversation. So I had to learn the law, how to ask for someone's permission to record a conversation and how to record a conversation. The people in the newspaper didn't have any equipment for me or any, mm-hmm. nothing. Yeah. I went to one of those Radio Shack stores and the right. guy was there. You need to ask for this. You need to ask for that. This is how you hook it up. This is how you do it. And the day I was supposed to interview him, one of my neighbors cut through the telephone wire in her garden and I had to go and set everything up in somebody else's house. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. <laughs> it's already stressful because then as soon as you get the tape, you have to listen physically to the tape and make sure you hit record and that the, the tape has saved the conversation. Oh gosh, I do not miss those days. <laughs> yeah, so, so, so it's trial by fire, really. Right. Right. But um, I, I learned so much. I learned how to interview. I learned how to write properly and concisely, how to write tightly. Mm-hmm. I think when you have um, articles for magazines or spaces that are so limited, you need to learn how to write tightly so that you can put a lot of information in very few words, mm-hmm. as well as, you know, doing the research and getting to know what people want. Yeah. You know, what are people receptive to? What what are the trends that people are interested in? It was a very day-to-day thing. And um, I wrote bi-weekly at the beginning and then weekly when it went to a larger paper. But what I learned mostly, I think, is that deadlines are important. I write really well under pressure. I love a deadline. Mm. It makes me feel that I have boundaries. And mm. so it makes me feel a little bit safe, if you will, in a safe zone to have deadlines and to have a clear limit of words and things like that. That's very different when you're writing a book. Oh, yes. yeah. I yeah. know we should get into this big, yes. beautiful book of yours. 592 pages. I mean, wow. <laughs> First of all, congratulations. Second of all, I hope you've like taken all your carpal tunnel stretching, like yoga, whatever you need to do. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. When did the idea come that you wanted to write a book that really included all 21 countries in Latin America? The cultures are so different. Um, so what made you think I can tie all this together in a book? Well, first of all, it was that idea that I started with a mission to break the stereotypes that bound Latin American cuisines together. That Mm -hmm. was something that always made it to my classes. Secondly, I had been teaching Latin American cuisines from all 21 countries for years. And whenever I served or I taught something, my students would say, this is incredible. Why haven't I tasted this before? Or what do you mean this is Argentinian food? It looks very Italian, but I see a difference here. That really got my juices flowing, you know, my creative juices flowing and saying, I've got to write a book in which I can expand the love of Latin American food and make a pan-Latin book. Mm -hmm. And so this was probably, I'm going to say, 
15 years ago that we came up with the idea. And I first talked to Lisa about this book and she said, we will get to that book, but they're oh. not ready for it. Publishers won't publish that. Interesting. In fact, I remember going to a symposium. Tony Allegra formed the Greenbrier Symposium for Food Writers. And it was a great place to go and learn about writing, but also to network with editors and publishers. It was a, just a fantastic mini conference. It was amazing. And I remember standing up when I'm challenged the extrovert in me comes out. I get a little bit indignant and I feel I have to speak out. And people were saying, you need to bring us more cuisines. We need to see more new cuisines. And I stood up in the group, mm-hmm. you know, and stuck my foot in my mouth. And I said, listen, I've been offering you 21 different cuisines. <laughs> and you keep saying you're not ready. <laughs> so I Good don't understand, you. you know, what it is that you want. So it's been in my mind for a long time. And this proposal that I started with went through different iterations, even as I was getting it ready to probably eight years for us to find a proposal that we felt comfortable selling. I was actually offered the opportunity to write a book on Latin American cuisine, a, a quick and easy Latin American cuisine cookbook about 12 or 13 years ago. But I didn't accept it because they were not willing to put any photographs in there. They were not willing to give me more of a historical and, you know, trivia element that I felt needed to be part of teaching people 21 different cuisines. It's not one, it's 21. So um, it had to be done in a way that was not intimidating. And so I passed on that opportunity. And I'm glad I did because that would have been a completely different book than this one. And and I'm ready to write this book now. I was ready, you know, a decade later to really put it all together. And I never stopped researching. Yeah. I think that's really smart. What you're saying is that you had an opportunity to write a version of this book earlier, but it didn't feel right to you. It wasn't the right way to tell the story. And I think that's something for, say, emerging authors to recognize that the first offer you get might not be the one if it doesn't feel right. Because what if that just pigeonholed the whole book and you'd never be able to do this one that you really wanted to do? That takes a certain amount of confidence, too, to you know wait for that opportunity to come. And what an opportunity. Can you tell us a little bit about how you found your publisher? It's a blessing, really, I'm, I will say, uh, Sally took it to several publishing houses. There was a lot of interest in this book. And my editor, Knopf, said, you know, um, we're really, really interested and we would like to negotiate with you first. Mm. And the rest is history, as they say. (laughs) One of the things that I loved about my editor, Tom Pold, is that he really got the gist of the book immediately. He wasn't telling me, change this, or maybe we can do this. So he's like, I get it. We want it. Let's talk about it. And that gives an author a lot of confidence that the book that is going to result from your ideas is going to be what you want to write, which goes back to the point you were making before. That was very important to me because I knew that this book was going to be big in terms of size and depth of all the information that was going to go in. I needed to know that I was going to be given the freedom to research and to really delve into what I felt was important because after all, I am the expert and I knew that I was coming and this not to sound like too proud or anything, but I knew that I was coming to introduce cuisines to the publishers as well, because I had not seen many cookbooks in Latin American cuisine. There are beautiful cookbooks on Latin American cuisine uh, for sure out there in the market. But what made mine different or the way that I was positioning mine is I didn't want to talk about the foods of a certain historical period or foods that are not that common anymore or foods that are very complicated to make. I wanted to bring, again, a very streamlined way of showing people what their contemporaries are doing and cooking in their homes today. Mm -hmm. So 
Yes, some of the recipes began before the colonial period, you know, with the indigenous peoples, but some of them have gone through so many iterations and changes because of the amalgamations of cultures and history that have has occurred during the years, but they're still being served in one way or the other today. So for me, this book is written for the cooks of today, cooks who are busy, who come home, you know, with a limited amount of time, who have a limited um, budget for food. I'm not asking you to go look for a rare iguana somewhere or something obscure like that. It's all food that you can find in your regular supermarket that you would eat, you can cook quickly, and you can cook inexpensively. And yet you're learning and it's delicious, it's vibrant, it's fresh. A lot of it is very healthy. So it really is for the modern cook. And that's what Kanaf had been waiting for. Mm. That's interesting because it's like not quick and easy necessarily. Mm-hmm. And there's still a lot of depth to the information you provide. But yet the recipes are not, they're not museum piece recipes. They're Correct. meant to be cooked. Right. I can't wait to to give this book to my mom because she's lived in Mexico. <laughs> she's lived in Ecuador. She's lived in Nicaragua. I, she probably has never made something from, from Guayaquil that she remembered eating there. But now she has your book. She can turn to the pages. And that's what's so great about... The recipes themselves, you're not organizing them by country, you're organizing them by ingredient. And then in the head note uh, below it, it says the country or area of origin, which I thought was very smart. Can you tell us a little bit about how you figured out how to organize all this work and how you figured out what recipes to keep and which ones just didn't fit? We thought first to do it by country, but then when you have a limited number of recipes that can go into a book and you have so many countries, it would have just made it very narrow. I could not have represented each country with the uh, depth that I was able to do by doing it the way that I did. Then we thought ingredients are also a great way to showcase how all Latin American cuisines tie together with the cuisines of the world, which ingredients are native to the Americas and which ingredients are native to somewhere else. It also shows the interconnectivity between the cuisines of certain peoples in Latin America and then also illustrates the differences between the cuisines. So we thought that was the the right way to go. In terms of recipes, you're going to laugh, but my very first recipe list have a box that boxes back there. With the <laughs> uh, my very first recipe list was 9,000 recipes. Oh what? my God. I don't think I, I know 9,000 recipes. Is that in a spreadsheet? <laughs> yeah, it, I've got it all, all my research, everything that, oh my gosh. but when I talked to Tom, my editor, I had narrowed it down to about 2000 recipes and he did something amazing for me. He said, Sandra, I want you to narrow it down to like uh, 200 recipes, your list, because we can't, you know, I would take a barge for me to sell each book if we started with 2000. <laughs> and I said, okay, I will. And I started cutting and cutting and cutting, already thinking of what and how we were going to present the book. And this is this is the university press experience in you when you have to vet and narrow down. And the newspaper, you only have a little bit of room. And I got to about 300 recipes and I picked up my phone and called him and I said, I can't make this any smaller because now we're going to lose the concept of the book. And he said, well, guess what? That was the point I wanted you to get to. This is your book. I don't care how many recipes are in it, really. (laughs) I just want you to to work on the book that will meet what we set out to me. And he said, you can add a few more recipes if you want to. And that's how we came up with 350 some official recipes. But there are probably, I think we stopped counting at 400 variations. Mm. So there are a lot of recipes in this book. If you read the side notes and you read the head notes, you're going to see a lot of variations 
and many other bonus recipes, which is something that made my cooking classes famous. Mm. <laughs> Again, I keep thinking of my reader. This is a book for people I know, you know, people I've known for decades, all my readers and, and trying to meet what they want. I know who my readership is. And so I write for them. You love everything cookbooks, right? And we love making it for you. If you're ready to take this relationship to the next level, go to everythingcookbooks.com slash support. There you'll find links to our new merch, including the coziest t-shirts and sweatshirts and our bookstore where we earn commission from every book you buy. You can also leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the show. Again, go to everythingcookbooks.com slash support to find all the ways to show us love. And thanks for listening. And some of the recipes, they come from other cooks, right? And you share their recipes. And how did you source them or how did you decide? I, I believe that one needs to give credit where credit is due. And that's always been very important to me. But also, I try to shy away from the word authenticity, what is authentic, because you could have two neighboring people in Ecuador, to make that example, and they're cooking a recipe and one cook makes it one way and the other cook has a different variation of the same recipe. It doesn't mean that the recipe is not authentic. Who is to say what recipe is authentic? You, you don't make uh, chicken soup only one way. So there's not only one way to make authentic chicken soup. And that is something that I thought needed to come clearly through this book and also something that I felt needed to be illustrated also through my research. So it's not only people's recipes that I include and every recipe that my friends or, or people I know gave me, but I also went back to studying very old cookbooks from Latin American countries. And I went back to the earliest cookbooks ever written in Spanish all the wow. way in Europe wow. to the you know, 10th, 11th, 13th century. I mean, um, wow. really going backwards a lot to see how, and European books, Italian books and things like that, to see how um, all those cultures could have impacted Latin America, why the impacts happen. Why do we eat what we eat? It's a question I'm always mm -hmm. asking. And so I feel like a detective, a little yeah. bit of soothing. And then I also was able to get uh, people to send me their personal photocopies of their notebooks that their grandmother made a recipe this way. And, and it's very interesting because in old Latin American cookbooks and in most modern, I'm not going to say all, but most contemporary Latin American cookbooks, the recipes are not spelled out in the way that we do in English. Yeah. We have become experts in writing a recipe. And you've also had wonderful speakers on that on, on your podcast, how to write a recipe. The way that I learned to write recipes through the paper and then through my teaching is never to assume mm -hmm. that a reader knows something mm -hmm. without insulting those who know it. You know, right, there's right, a very right. fine line. But in Latin American cookbooks, you will get instructions like cook the cake until it's done mm -hmm. or stir the sauce until it's ready. What does that mean? You know, uh, <laughs> so adding the visuals until it uh, is viscous, like a sour cream. And then it sounds like this. I, I put all, all kinds of descriptors, sound, mm -hmm. smells, color, textures, etc. Because I cannot assume that every cook is going to know the same things, especially when it's 21 different cuisines. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Even though that cooking techniques are very universal for mo the most part. I don't want to insult my reader by assuming that they can do something they can't. And then the recipes are super vetted and super tested. That's something that is, has been super important for me in my, my writing. 
because that's something that is also missing in a lot of cookbooks, not only Latin America, but particularly in Latin American books that I've studied is recipes that you're reading and you say, this ingredient is missing or that won't work, or you just burn the chicken right there at that temperature, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so not only do I test the recipes and I've been a recipe developer and tester now for over 25 years, but I also have professional tester vet the recipes and I have regular cooks students generally my students oh cool at different levels of cooking testing their recipes they cannot change a single ingredient they have to follow the instructions exactly as i written them they have to keep a photo journal of each step of each recipe mm-hmm. and believe it or not a lot of people love to do that and i'm very very fortunate in addition to that because we photographed this book during covid we did it all in my house oh. and the photographer he, he truly is one of the best photographers that I've ever worked with, Kevin Miyazaki. And he comes, I believe, from Milwaukee and he came to our oh, house. Yeah, he's lovely. He is amazing. I really admire him. But we set up a studio in the foyer of my house. We had to do a lot of recipes. There are only about 100, and I say only, but there are about 159 <laughs> photographs in the book, but there are actually about 250 recipes photographed because some of wow. the photos have more than one recipe in them. And so we have to cook all these food in eight days. It's, it's a huge job. That's wow. I Wait, can I just back up? I'm thinking eight days. Yeah. That's a lot. I actually have photos of what <laughs> Oh took. my God, in your house. So you can't leave the photo shoot at the end of the day. You're living in it like for that full eight days. And the props and the equipment and everything. But I was very blessed. When did that process for the photos take place? Because I'm just wondering if you could talk us through the timeline. Once you signed the deal with Knopf. Yeah. This is a book that needs to simmer for a while. So what was the time frame like and when did the photo shoot happen? The first manuscript took, I'm going to say, two and a half years to write. I had already done so much of the research. That's the beauty of thinking of a book and being able to prepare different proposals on it is that you become an expert in your subject as you, that's why those proposals are truly the skeleton of the book. All I had to do was to put the flesh and the different We should tell everybody that. Think of it. It's like the (laughs) the blueprint, the skeleton, you know, the easy part's actually with writing, right? (laughs) Exactly. It's much easier when you already know the structure of it. The photography, we did that in May of 2021. So two years ago. And then we had to interrupt the editing process because unfortunately I broke my neck. <gasps> oh, wow. And they don't know how. It was one of these fluke oh, accidents. I'm so sorry to hear that. But that's okay. But I went to the hospital. Uh, they did an emergency surgery and I was paralyzed from the neck down after the surgery. And I couldn't write. I literally could not get to a typewriter. So it took me about four months of therapy to get back to doing, I'm so blessed. I'm a walking miracle to do everything that I did before. I'm back to 100% normal, but we had to interrupt the process. So that really doesn't count. You know, those four or five months, I don't count them as part of the process. Um, So we did this two years ago. And that's why for the people who actually came to help cook that week, it has been a long wait for them to see their work on paper. And they're they're just now getting their advanced copies and they're, they're starting to see what they worked on. I was very blessed that I called a friend of mine who used to work as the team manager of the cooking school here. And because the cooking school was closed, I asked her, would you come and help me cook? And she said, of course I will. When she arrived, there were eight people with her. Wow. Oh, wow. That's awesome. So that became very easy. That's why we were able to photograph so many recipes. Right. This book is really part of a community that's larger than any one person. People say it takes a village to whatever, but it really does take a lot of people to, to make a beautiful book, especially one that goes this in depth 
And the recipes got all retested, though. Oh, see, that was a sneaky, so like, extra, triple test. Right, true. That's <laughs> yeah. so true. An yeah. extra way of vetting that the recipes worked. I had to rent the fridge. We had several coolers. We had freezers. We had a room, two rooms of props. We had uh, one room of food. And the food kept changing. My husband went to the supermarkets every morning. We started at okay. 6 o'clock in the morning. We ended up at around 8 or 9 every night. We had lunch every day as a crew. And everybody walked out with all the leftovers because that was a difficult thing. When you're cooking 200 recipes with two fridges, I don't care, you know, yep. how much space a fridge has. So much food. Yeah. I didn't want to waste anything. And everything we photographed was real. We didn't use any pastes, any sprays. Everything was real. It's about the food and the ingredients. It was just a magical time. It was probably mm. the favorite part of writing this book for me because it was community. And we had been so alone during that, the COVID situation. Yeah. And it, it was during that window when they told us we could all take our masks off. And two months later, we had to put them back on. <laughs> it was very magical. Wow. And then you were able to be so hands-on with all the photos as well, because it's in your house. So you're already knowing, oh, but the, the recipe I know has this garnish and it's not on the plate. We need that. So it matches the recipe. All those checks and balances were just all done. Exactly. Um, sometimes that doesn't happen till later. So that's really great. And even the props, many of the props come from Latin American countries mm. that I've collected over the years of traveling. And also many of them are antiques that I have um, mm. collected from my family. Wow. So things that belong to my grandmother or my great grandmother made it to the book. And only I know that, but it is part of, of making something from the place particularly since we were not going on location to photograph it. Right. Before we started recording, we talked a little bit about translation. Can you tell us how do translations work? This is the other reason I, I decided to go with Kanaf, other than they're the, one of the best publishing houses, the best in the world. But it's the, the fact that they were willing to allow me to translate the book and have two editions coming out at the same time in two different languages. They'd never done this before. Hmm. And they took a leap of faith and said, okay, we'll let you do it. In such a big book, it's a lot of work. Yeah. So the book is being released also on October 3rd. Both books, the one in English and the one in Spanish, are released on the same day. They are identical from cover to cover, with the exception that the Spanish translation has a glossary uh, at the end that it uh, represents all the different versions of words in Spanish, because like I've mentioned before, we don't all speak Spanish. And that was the trick in translating the book, in translating the book into a Spanish that anybody from any country in Latin America could understand, because we have different words for different ingredients. Remolacha, which are beets, becomes betarraga in different countries. It's so different. So different. Did you have to rewrite significant amount of the headnotes to be able to sort of, you know, address those those language differences? Yeah, the, the material in each headnote is identical, but I did have to rewrite it. In fact, I was very involved with the translation of this book. We had a translator that did sort of the draft, and then I went in and I rewrote the whole book. Uh, it had to be in the language that, that matched all the different countries. And I kept going and building the glossary as I translated to start working different cuts of meat in different countries are these and different utensils are this and, and then working the words in the book in a way that I use the most common word that I, that I can find in the most countries, but I also have parentheses and different words in it. And I remind people to go to the glossary. So there are many ways in which people can find what they're looking for. Mm -hmm. Right. It is very rewarding for me to be able to offer the book in two languages because it yes. opens it up to everyday cooks all over. The Spanish edition is distributed in the U.S., right? Yes. Both editions are being distributed uh, initially in the U.S., Canada and Puerto Rico. 
mm-hmm. and uh, Latin American territories and other territories of book. That's how it works. We'll start picking up the book. And it is said that a book gets legs depending on where it walks to and where the book gets to. Um, and I have found that all of my other books have made it around the world. It's really, really interesting uh, when you get a book review in Singapore. Sure. Yeah, so cool. So we'll see where this one takes us. Were there certain recipes that were just really hard to get right? Uh, no. And I will just say because of the type of recipes that I was looking mm-hmm. at, I was not looking at obscure recipes. But uh, what I did is, and where I like to start for recipe developers or, or recipe developers in the making, is you can find, for instance, one recipe, let's talk about the sancocho. The word sancocho is used in different countries for different dishes, but I'm talking about this Panamanian chicken soup. The way that I approached each recipe was interviewing many cooks. Uh, in the case of this particular recipe, my friend um, Elena Hernandez, who's a chef in Panama, suggested because it was COVID and I had to cancel my 23 city trip oh, to yeah. talk and interview people. She said, you know, you can still interview people through Zoom. <laughs> the first one that we organized was with her and she organized a cooking class with a chef preparing that dish and 16 other cooks. Wow. So I was able to interview each one and take notes on why is yours different? Or my grandmother did this or to thicken the soup. My, my great grandmother told us this or and then from all of those results and all of that conversation, you start to develop one recipe mm. that brings together the common elements and then the variations. Mm-hmm. Right. And mm-hmm. I did that with 350 some recipes, oh you know, that, wow. because there's not one way to make something. Mm-hmm. And that's so generous of the people too, right. you know, well, I think sometimes people get afraid to ask, ask those questions. And it's funny how much people want to share. Food people were very gregarious people. and. Mm. And we really, you love to eat, you love to talk about food. It is one of the easiest conversation openers is, you know, what did you have for lunch? And oh my goodness, did you know, this tastes so good. Have you tried anything like this? And people start talking about food and people who love to cook particularly love to share. And, and that was important to me to tell people, you know, we're sharing recipes. Uh, I'm not one who has ever kept a recipe secret. Mm-hmm. You know, my secret salad dressing recipe, because <laughs> what's the fun of it? Then a recipe dies that way. Mm-hmm. The only way to make a recipe last long and keep on going through generation and becoming classics is to share them. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, do you have any sort of parting words of wisdom for or somebody who wants to embark on an ambitious cookbook and isn't sure you know, where to start? I think the first thing I would say is if you really want to do something, and you set your mind to it, don't accept no as an answer. When I hear the word no, I hear not here, not yet, not now. But I never hear that absolute no, because who is it to say that circumstances are not going to change? That would be one of my advice. My second advice is start at the beginning, start small. It's very difficult to start big when you have not done the work before. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that happens to many of us is that we will come up with a book and somebody will say, oh, my goodness, you became famous so quickly. (laughs) It doesn't happen quickly. It's been 36 years in the making to get to this point. It's just that not everybody is witness to the entire process. So don't be afraid to start at the beginning and, and know that everything you do today will have an impact in what you will write tomorrow. That's such wise words to to end with. This was such a great conversation. I just want writers who want to write cookbooks to remember that the most important element is to know who their readers are and to write to your readers. Don't write to yourself. Don't write to your publisher. Write for your readers, to your readers. Speak to them because ultimately they will be the ones who will cook from your book. 
Ah, that is so smart. It's so sometimes easy to get sucked into, oh, I want to please this one person. And then they give me the gold star. But you really, you shouldn't want to just please one person. You're really writing this for a lot of people that you don't even know yet. And so you really need to think broad. That's really smart. And it's worth it waiting to to know who your audience is. Mm -hmm. It's worth, you know, getting to research who they are. Yeah. So um, I'm so excited to be on, on your podcast. I'm so oh. grateful. Oh, thank you. We loved having you. And thank you so much for sharing. Congratulations on your book. I know. Congratulations. Huge accomplishment. I can't wait to hold it in my hands. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Everything Cookbooks. For more episodes and ways to contact us, go to our website, everythingcookbooks.com. The show is also available on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your audio. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a review. Any book mentioned in the show can be found on our affiliate page at bookshop.org. Thanks as always to our editor, Abby Circatella. Until next time, keep on writing, reading, and cooking.